0: Once again, we have Jesus writing a letter to one of the churches in the province of Asia. Can you imagine what Jesus would write to you? It is a question that we are going to ask repeatedly as we go through the seven churches of Asia. and Consider, what would Jesus say to you individually and what would He say to this congregation? What are the things that are lacking, that need to be corrected? And what are the things that you are doing well that Jesus would approve and praise? If Jesus were to write us a letter, would He say that we are rich? It's one of the things that He writes to Smyrna. Now I want us to look at the conditions of Smyrna because you may be surprised that Jesus would call them rich. And as we look at the church in Smyrna, we're going to look at some of the ways that we can reinvigorate our zeal and our fire to serve God more fully, to be what He has wanted us to be. Last week we saw the problem of the lack of love, that we may be doing all the right things, we may be upholding truth, we may be abhorring evil, but... If we do not act out of love, if it is not out of our concern and zeal for God, it is not of any benefit to the Lord. Here we have an interesting scenario. We have the city of Smyrna. And and Smyrna is a little bit different than the other cities that we're going to read about. Uh, The city of Smyrna considered itself and proclaimed itself to be the prominent and the best of all of the province of Asia. They considered that their city was the most beautiful, that it was the most precious and most desirable to live. It was San Diego. I mean, it was great. And that's where they were at, is they're saying, we've got the best city and we are, are very important. In fact, some of the ways that they showed that importance was that there was a contest uh, around the, the turn of zero there uh, AD, around the, just before Emperor Tiberius, and there was a contest of the cities to determine who would be able to have the temple in honor to the emperor it'd be somewhat similar to how when we have olympics every four years all the cities try to vie to be able to have that right well all the cities were in a competition to see who was going to gain the honor and the privilege of having a temple to the emperor Smyrna They were the ones that received the rights and the privilege. They were very loyal to the city of Rome. In fact, all the way back in 195 B.C., they had built a temple to the goddess Roma. And so they have been great loyalty, great ties to the city of of Rome. They are very much uh, in line with the emperors. We also find later on, that they also built an emperor, a temple to the emperor Hadrian. So I want you to get a feel for how Roman this city is, how much they love the emperor. There is the worship of the emperor there. In fact, every year, the citizens of Smyrna were required to go to the temple and to offer their sacrifice to the emperor. It would not be too difficult for us to understand that there would be a conflict For Christians who lived in this city that was so pro-Rome, that had all of the emperor worship that was going on there, that was considered number one for Rome, and they had to offer their sacrifices to the emperor every year, that a Christian who would abstain from that would have some difficulties. And what we are reading about in Revelation chapter 2 reveals those problems. It reveals the conflict that these Christians are dealing with. When we read the book of Acts, we see that this is a common problem, that the Jews in their hatred of Christians were using the Roman authorities and powers to try to get Christians arrested, to have them persecuted and sometimes killed. And we're going to see that also brought out here as was done in the reading. We're going to read about this, this synagogue of people who call them Jews, themselves Jews but are not. And so as we look at this, we're going to call today's lesson Faith Under Fire, because this is where the city of Smyrna lies, and the Christians that are there, the difficulties that they are facing, what did they do, how were they to handle this scenario? You'll notice in in verse 8, you have Jesus, another interesting self-description. To each of the seven churches, he describes himself a little bit different, and It will become clear as we go through these verses, but it should be a raising of an eyebrow when Jesus' description to the Christians in Smyrna is, I'm the one who died and came to life. That's not what you're going to want to hear of the description about the things that are about to transpire for these Christians in this city. And so verse 9 begins about the things that Jesus knows about these Christians. He begins with, I know your tribulation. I know the persecution that you are enduring. I know the difficulties that you are facing. Literally the pressure, the pressing that is going on there as you live your life in service to Jesus. I know the problems. I know the challenges. I know the persecution. I know your suffering. I know how bad it is. In fact, he goes a little bit further in verse 9 and says, and I know your poverty. We need to put our finger on that for a moment because what that word means is not, uh, well, they're poor and they've lost their jobs and so things are kind of tough right now, you know, like some sort of economic condition and things are bad and it's just a little bit tight right now. That's not the poverty that he's talking about. The word there means that they had nothing. They don't have anything. Their possessions are gone. Their wealth is gone. And the reason why that is curious is because Smyrna was a very wealthy city. It was a very prosperous city. This was not some low town backwoods and so you know it's not going well there and everybody who lived there was poor. No. This is a very prominent city. They claimed themselves to be number one in the the province. And not only that, they had the wealth behind it. They had the temples there. They were pro-Rome. So the question would be, what is the problem? Why would we have a situation where Christians are impoverished, where they have nothing, in a very city that is full of wealth, in a city that is full of prominence and prestige? The implication is that it's been taken away from them. It's going to become evident that the problem is not that, well, they just have stumbled across hard times. The problem is that as the Christians would not conform to worshiping the emperor, would not be pro-Rome, would not worship the goddess, would not then say their words to the emperor Tiberius or later on to Domitian who would sit on the throne and demand it as well, that one of the easy ways to try to bring about the submission of the masses of the city is to seize their property, is to seize their possessions, to seize their wealth. And that is what is being pictured here in verse 9 of I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know you're suffering for Christ and how it is tied to your economic loss. And I think as we, we talk about that, we ought to just consider would, would we be like the Christians in Smyrna? Would we be willing to say, you know what, you could take everything away, go ahead and strip me of my possessions? I'm not going to bow the knee to some idol. I'm not going to bow for the emperor. I'm not going to worship something else. I'm only going to worship the Lord. And the reason why I question that is because even in our own despair that we have now of economic difficulties, we quickly see how many people give up on God. We quickly see how many people throw in the towel and go, well, well, what's going on here? Why aren't things going the way that I think that they should? Why don't I have all the wealth that I want? What happened to the good times? And people begin to blame God and may quickly even give up on God. I want us to observe the Christians in Smyrna. One of the fascinating things about this letter is that Jesus has no criticism of them. Here are Christians who are suffering. Here are Christians who are losing their things, losing their property. And Jesus has no complaint about what they're doing. It shows that these people have the love that the Christians in Ephesus did not have. And yet, those Christians are not experiencing what these Christians were. They cared so deeply about their Lord that they were willing to suffer any kind of loss, to have anything taken away from them. And I think that's what's fascinating about verse 9 is understand that this is not a statement by some outsider. If Jesus says you're poor, how poor do you have to be economically for Jesus to agree that you're poor? And Jesus wasn't rolling around with some great wheels and threads. He's not somebody who had a lot of wealth. And for him to look at this church and say, "You are poor, friends," these Christians did not have much, if anything at all. Do you see the parenthetical though? But you're rich. <laughs> I would hear that and I'd go, "Really." <laughs> We're just getting run through living in this city. We are being ruined and persecuted and going through hardships. And Jesus says, I know you have nothing, but you are rich. And I think this is a first place that we can talk about our zeal is the recognition that no matter what our economic circumstances are, we are always rich toward God. What a great blessing that Jesus could say to these Christians, I know you're going through hard times, I know you're suffering, I know you are lack in terms of possessions, but I want you to know, you are rich toward God. You have everything you need. And what that shows us, I think, is a couple of really important points. One, how often we like to use our economic situation as a reason why we cannot worship God or why we can't serve God. That's an excuse that's used a lot. Well, we just don't have any money. It's just kind of hard right now. Things are real tight. You don't see the Christians doing that here that Jesus has to come along and kind of kick them and light the fire and say, you know what, but come on. I know you have absolutely nothing, but you need to get on board. These Christians have nothing and they're still serving. They're still worshiping. Jesus still knows their works. And I think it's important for us to consider... That is an unwise excuse on our part to use our lack of wealth as an excuse as to why we cannot serve God. Because consider that the Christians, because they served God, were in deep poverty. You see what happened with them? They weren't the, well, you know, things are tough and so I can't serve God. They served God and that's why things were tough. That's why this was happening to them. Imagine how easy it would have been to say, you know what, I'll go ahead and pinch a little of those ashes onto the altar there, and I'll say, yes, yes, emperor, go on my way, and I'll just keep getting my paychecks and we'll be good to go. That's all you had to do. They refused. And they suffered for that. These are Christians I look forward to shaking their hand and saying, wow, (laughs) wow. Because with all of our prosperity and with all of our wealth and all that we are used to, with all of our comforts, I think it's shameful to be able to then sit down by these Christians who just gave it all for the sake of the Lord. It didn't matter. I'm impressed by them. And what that reminds us then is that we need to be satisfied with where we are. So often we are looking at all the things that we do not have in this world, and we fail to see how much we have with God. That's what I think is so precious about that little phrase I know your poverty, but you're rich. I want you to see something, Christians. I want you to see how much treasure you have with Christ. I want you to see how rich you are before God when you continue to make the decision to put the Lord first instead of wealth, instead of material things, instead of accumulating possessions and trying to have more. When you continue to make that choice of the Lord first over my economic condition, He says, I want you to see how rich you are even though it may feel like you're so poor on this earth. I want you to see it. I want you to see how blessed you are before God. What a great statement from the Lord to say, I want you to know something, you are rich. Wow, that's some great comfort in the midst of some serious suffering that these Christians are enduring. I want us to consider that it is our love of things that often quenches our love for Christ. I think that is one of the things that greatly douses our flames as we're trying to serve God. And we talked about last week to return to the love and the zeal that we had at the beginning. One of the other things that often interferes is our love for everything else. We get caught up in the things of this world. We enjoy the things of this world. And it distracts our attention and steals our love away from the Lord. We don't believe that. (laughs) It's one of those things that you read this and you read what Jesus says and for some reason we continue to believe that we can love all of the things of this world and love our possessions and love wealth and have as much as we want and still love God. I dropped off the end because that's what we usually remember the most. And I'll give you the beginning of what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 24. And catch the love that He describes here. No one can serve two masters, but watch what He says. Either He will hate the one and love the other, or He will be devoted to one and despise the other. Remember how the rest of that goes? You cannot serve God and Wealth. Jesus made it very clear. Friends, there's only one thing you can love. If you love the Lord, you can't love the things of this world. If you love wealth and possessions and things, you cannot love God. It's not possible. If we loved wealth and we loved possessions and we loved all the things of this world... When a situation like verse 9 comes along, we will most certainly quit and give up on God. We most certainly will. Because that's what I care about most. Don't take away my things. Don't take away my stuff. Don't take away my money. I'll do whatever it takes to keep all of my pleasures and joys. I want you to see what a different way of thinking these Christians in Smyrna had. What a different way of thinking that he said. They just said, you know what? Take it all. We don't care. We're rich toward God. Would we have that same attitude? I'm afraid we'd be bitter and we'd go home and say, you know, I don't know if worshiping God's all cracked up to be. We just keep losing stuff every time we ever do anything. They keep seizing our things, keep taking away our possessions. Is it really worth it? You are rich. Jesus knows that they love God more than anything in this world. And it didn't matter, to put it in our vernacular, if they took away the cars, if they took away the houses, if they took away all of our electronics and comfort toys and things that we enjoy, it didn't matter if they took every single one away. The Lord would remain first. And I believe that's why Jesus does not have to say anything to this church about, but you are lacking, or I have one thing against you. They have the love that the church in Ephesus did not. Look at the rest of verse 9. Here's one other thing that they know. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Uh, that one is really interesting. Did I just duplicate a slide? No, nope, I didn't duplicate a slide. It's okay. It's okay. There it is. <laughs> I know your tribulation, your poverty, your slander. People who say they are Jews and are not. I guess we have to say this because sometimes it doesn't seem like we should have to, but I think it catches us off guard. There are people who are claiming to be followers of God who are really not. that's, That's profound. But I think it has to sink in and we catch that. Because that's what's going on here. There are people who will claim to be followers of God. People who will claim that they are serving Jesus and they love Him with all of their heart. They're going to claim everything about that. But they're not. There are people who are claiming to be followers of God. They say that they are Jews. He says, I know they're slander. I know that they're running around saying things bad against you. You get the idea of what these Jews are doing to say the slander of the Jews? They are not slandering them before God. They're going to the Roman authorities of Smyrna and slandering them to the authorities. That's why they're in so much hurt. That's why they're enduring such suffering. Is there are these people who are claiming to be the followers of God, and yet they're the very reason why the suffering is enduring. And so we need to understand that. That there are going to be people within our own assembly, people that we will encounter in the world, that they Claim to be followers of God, but they're not. They're putting on a show. They're faking it. They've got the title. They're doing all the outward things, but they're not really in love with God. Be warned. I've posted things like that a couple of times on the website, only to get the fire of uh, brimstone down on my head. How dare you say that somebody's not doing what God says? Because they're not doing what God says. You know, they're not doing what God says. It's as simple as that. We can claim it all we want to, but are we going to do it? These Christians were doing it. These Jews who claim to be followers of God were not. Uh, does the end of verse nine strike you? They're an assembly of Satan. Now, <laughs> well, that's not being nice at all, is it? That's very, you know, being kind and considerate and very PC there. Wow. Not only are they pretenders, they are the assembly of Satan. What they're doing is so wrong. They are so off base that they are followers of Satan instead. Verse 10, imagine if you're getting a letter from Jesus. Not words I want to hear. Because we've already mentioned how badly these Christians are suffering. And then He says, don't fear what you are about to suffer. And I think I would hang my head in tears and go, no, not more. You're already enduring so much. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know the slander. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. It's only going to get worse. Your suffering is only going to increase. Notice the description. Verse 10, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. It's only going to get worse. Some of you are going to be imprisoned. He says you're going to endure tribulation for 10 days. I think 10... We've talked about in our study of Revelation in our Sunday night series, we go through the book, that as we read images, we read numbers and names, that we understand those things as symbolic unless something in the text demands otherwise. Friends, I don't see anything in here that demands otherwise. I think the point is not that it was only going to be ten short days of suffering, but rather there's going to be a limited duration. You're going to suffer. It's going to be for a time. It's not going to be an awful long time, but it's going to be a long enough time. And so I want you to understand. Be prepared. There's more suffering coming. Can I ask you, would you still be on board with that? We've already asked the question, okay, we're losing all of our stuff, we're losing all of our property, they are taking all of our things away, would we still worship God? And then Jesus comes along and says, I want you to know something else. It's going to get way worse. Now you're going to be thrown in prison and you're going to endure tribulation for a short time. You still on board? Can you imagine preaching that message to Smyrna? Who wants to be a Christian? Guess what happens when you become a Christian? They're going to take away all your stuff. You're going to take away all your things. It's going to be really hard and they're going to throw you in prison. Anybody love Jesus? What kind of message would that go? It's not a message that works today, I'll tell you that. And I can imagine the message didn't sound too good to, the to people there in the city as the Christians preached it. Would you still serve knowing that the future held suffering? Would you still serve and obey and worship and still love God knowing that you're going to be thrown in prison? Notice who's against them. In verse 10, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. I've mentioned this a few times. It's worth mentioning again. Know who you're up against. Look at what Satan is doing. It's a picture that will become crystallized for us in chapter 12 as we're going to see that Satan is the awful source behind what the Christians are enduring. I wonder how many would blame God when all these things would start going wrong. I want you to observe what Jesus says. Don't blame me. Blame Satan. The devil is the one who's doing this. Understand that your suffering is coming from Him. Understand that He is the one who's bringing the torment. We'll talk about more about that in just a minute, but let me add the final words that He gives there in verse 10. Be faithful unto death. Are those words that you want to hear? you're losing your property, you're losing your possessions, I know your poverty, I know your tribulation, I know your suffering, it's going to get worse. They're going to throw you in prison. You're going to be in tribulation for ten days. Be faithful till death. Do you see why Jesus began this letter, I died and now i am alive. There is a grim warning that is coloring this text, telling these Christians it's going to get that bad. Be faithful to death. Why? Because you're rich toward me, and just as I died, the Lord says I was made alive again. And so you endure to the point of death, and you'll be made alive again. And that's what he describes there in verse 11. Listen to what he has to say. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who endures will not be hurt by the second death. He does not say, now the one who endures is going to avoid the first death. I think that would make me feel better if I was in Smyrna. Okay, we're all going to be okay. It's going to be tough, but we're not going to die. And so, okay, good. We're going to go to prison and take away our things. No. He's implying you're going to be hurt by the first, that you will not be by the second death. Be faithful until death, and you will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? You're not going to be separated from God. You're not going to be eternally punished. You will have what matters most. And that's the picture that he is trying to describe for these Christians. Of I want you to see that it is going to be okay. No, it's not going to be okay physically. There is nothing in here in terms of their immediacy that says it's going to be okay. Jesus doesn't say, "You know what?" And after a short time, you'll get all your things back. After a short time, the suffering is going to stop. After a while, you won't be put in prison. You're not going to be put to death. He doesn't give them anything like that. All that He tells them is you won't be hurt by the second death because you're rich toward God. Because you've put your faith in Him. Because you've put everything on the line for Christ. What about us? Will we only serve the Lord when it's easy? I think it is important for us to ignite the flames of our love for God so that we can get to a point that says, I will serve the Lord no matter what. I will serve God no matter what happens. And if I'm honest with you, the way I am about things, I just don't think that's true of us in this country. And I don't mean us, me, and us. I mean Christians in this nation. I think we, because we are so soft with all of our things... And we have to have all of our toys and all of our gadgets and all of our pleasures. And if we don't have it, we're not going to serve. Would we really still serve if we lost it all? I really want you to seriously think about yourself. If you were put to the point of that decision, would you serve with everything ripped away from you? Would you serve as you watched your family die? Will you serve as you lose everything that is important to you? Will you still bow the knee to God? Or will you say, that's too much of a price? We can't serve because gas is four dollars. We can't serve because there's football tonight. We can't serve because I'm tired. We can't serve because we're worn out. We can't serve because it's not convenient. We can't serve because we've got other stuff to do. And we think that we're going to sit in eternal life with these Christians. Far be it. Far be it of us. If our definition, I'm borrowing this from somebody, I thought he said it so well. If our definition of God's mercy, of God's divine power is that he will not let us suffer, then we don't know the God of the Bible. If that's our perspective of Christianity is that what it means is that if I come to Jesus, I'm not going to suffer. Everything's going to be great. I'm not going to have problems, and if something goes wrong, that's God's fault. Let me tell you. God shows us quite clearly here that He does not devote His energy to keeping us from physical suffering. He doesn't do it. Verse 11 shows us He devotes His energy and power and might and grace to saving us from the second death. Because that's the most important thing. We must stop seeing this world as the most important thing. God does not devote His energy to protect us from suffering in this world. He devotes everything to saving us from the death to come. And we must get our eyes on that so that we can see how rich we are toward God. Because the more we look at this world the more we think we do not have and the more we become soft and the more we do not serve because we don't see the riches that we can have with Christ. Be faithful from the second death. Did you catch the last verse of the song we had just before the lesson? To him that overcometh, God giveth a crown. Through faith we shall conquer, though often cast down. Did you mean it? It's a picture to those who will conquer. The very words that he uses in these letters. The crown will be given to those who endure, to those who show that the most important thing is not the things of this world, but God and serving Him with all of our might. I encourage you to think about, for us, is that our suffering and anything that we endure in this world is only temporary. No matter how bad we might ever have something. And I think we will all admit that none of us have put to any fraction of a degree of what these Christians had to go through. We're not even a fraction of it. But even to the fraction of any kind of suffering that we endure, it doesn't matter because it is only temporary. I want you to see it as God's desire for us to serve. While it is the devil's desire to throw problem and pain and suffering at Christians over and over again. God didn't promise it was going to be easy. But He did promise that He's concerned about your soul. And He has done everything to make it possible for you to be with Him. Let us take our eyes off of the things of this world. And when we put our eyes squarely on God and all that He has done for us and the blessings that He has and His focus for our souls and not for our comfort, I believe we'll be able to fan the flames and serve God the way He desires us to serve when we get out of this temporal world and start seeing the eternal world that we live and that we serve. What's your focus? Will you pray with me please? Dear Lord, on behalf of myself and for those who feel the same way, I just simply apologize for for not serving you with the zeal and the fire that we read about in these verses that the Christians in Smyrna had that regardless of difficulty, regardless of suffering, regardless of loss, they would not yield but for a moment from serving you. And I pray that we will be strengthened with the same integrity and the same desire and strength to do the same. No matter what our challenges, no matter what our difficulties are, no matter what temptation lies in front of us, no matter what suffering Satan throws at us, may we serve You fully. In Jesus' name, Amen. We invite you to come to Jesus. We invite you to turn to Him with all of your heart to serve Him as the true and living God who has died for your sins because He cares about your soul so much and has focused everything so that you can be with Him. Regardless of what happens in this world, the promise, you will be with God if you will serve Him today. Turn away from this world, love Him with all of your heart, and decide to follow Him in submission and service. Confess Him as the Lord, the Son of God. And begin that walk and begin that relationship by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. We offer it to you. It's available to you now. Let me know. Let somebody next to you know that you need to be in fellowship with Christ. It's time to turn away from the world and I need to be baptized for the forgiveness of my sins. Let us know. Come forward while we stay we way.